In one of the largest attended hangings for the state of Montana, more than 6,000 people showed up to witness the deaths of the gang that called themselves the Innocents. They were ruthless marauders, killing and robbing in the most methodical and organized way. They crippled the entire area with fear. Our tale today revolves around just one of these men, perhaps the worst of the lot. He became known as the Kentucky Cannibal. The apprehended culprits were ceremoniously lined up under the main beam of an unfinished wooden building. When he was taken into custody, Levi Boone Helm somehow got his finger pinched and it was something he chose to complain about. He was being marched to his death, but his finger hurt. While waiting for the proceedings to begin, allowing his fellow doomed outlaws to receive their final prayers, he would shout loudly interrupting the solemn occasion, quote, For God's sakes, if you're going to hang me, I want you to do it and get through with it. If not, I want you to tie up my finger for me. End quote. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Emerson Huff, author of Levi Boonhelm, Murderer, Cannibal, and Thief, wrote, quote, He was, by birth and breeding, low, coarse, cruel, animal-like, and utterly depraved, and for him no name but ruffian can fitly apply, end quote. Nathaniel P. Langford would write, quote, The wretch I am now about to introduce was one of those hideous monsters of depravity whom neither precept nor example could have saved from a life of crime, end quote. He was born in Kentucky to a large family, but as a young child, his family moved to Monroe County, Missouri. At a young age, he had already taken to drinking, fighting, and questioning authority. He became proficient in horseback riding and enjoyed perfecting weapons usage. Langford would say, quote, When Helm was excited by liquor, he gave way to all the evil passions of his nature. End quote. Huff writes, quote, He was of powerful build and turbulent temper, delighting in nothing so much as feats of strength, skill, and hardihood. His community was glad to be rid of him, as was, indeed, any community in which he ever lived. <laughs> hardihood. <laughs> Words. As a teenager, he participated in boxing and wrestling exhibitions. Apparently, there weren't enough of those scheduled, so he sought out entertainment on his own. He started hanging around saloons and drinking, challenging any man to a fight. There was really nothing the local law enforcement could do, or would do. One story I heard was that the town had finally gotten tired of him beating up the residents, so a sheriff was sent to arrest Levi Boone Helm, offering a warrant as proof of his authority. Helm refused to get off the horse and be arrested. Instead, he took himself over to the courthouse and rode up the steps and into the main room where proceedings were being held and demanded to know, quote, what fool of a judge put his name on this warrant, end quote. He cursed and yelled out threats, and the judge recanted the order for his arrest. And he was so kind enough not to charge him with contempt of court as well. Satisfied, 
Helm tipped his hat, and he and his horse left the courtroom, allowing proceedings to continue. In 1848, at 20 years old, he marries Lucinda Browning. She was 17 at the time of her marriage and also heavy with child. They had the one child, a daughter. Both sets of parents supported them since Boone refused to work and spent most of his awake time drunk. In less than two years, Lucinda moved back home with her parents, afraid for her safety and the safety of their child as he was known to abuse her. Boone's father would foot the bill for the divorce and help support his grandchild. It was all fine and good with Helm, as California and the gold rush was calling his name. Before he heads across country in 1850, he rides to Paris, Missouri to find his cousin and asks that he accompany him out west. His cousin, Littlebury Chute, ultimately was forced to decline the offer, as in, he was dead. The story goes that Initially, he agreed to go, that either he sobered up and realized what a bad choice it was, or they couldn't agree on where exactly to go. So, Boone stabbed him between the ribs directly into his heart. And that was that. He grabbed his things, jumped on his horse, and headed west. According to an article from the Billings Gazette, he was known to torture animals and children. By the time Boone Helm was grown, and soon after his marriage, the great gold craze of California broke out, and he joined the rush westward. Already he was a murderer, and already he had a reputation as a quarrelsome and dangerous man. End quote. After his brother, William Chute, discovered the body, he gathered a posse to go after Boone. They found out that he was hiding out on an Indian reservation, but when they found him, he had wandered off into the woods alone. He was starving, dehydrated, and acting crazy. More crazy than usual. His horse was tied to a tree, but it was dead. They claim he was talking nonsense and licking the ground to try and quench his thirst. They approached cautiously and managed to hogtie him, taking him back for trial. Helm's parents would hire attorneys and try to aid their son, and it's said that they were almost completely bankrupt before the whole fiasco came to a disappointing close. Levi Helm was found guilty of murder. However, he was not sentenced to hang. The judge would comment, quote, he didn't seem right in the head, end quote. And he was instead sent to an asylum for the remainder of his life. While at this asylum in Missouri, he regains his strength, gets rest, and is afforded three meals a day. But instead of throwing his usual temper tantrums, he remains calm. The perfect patient. Langford would note in his recollections, quote, his conduct, meantime, being that of a quiet, inoffensive lunatic, end quote. He is soon allowed more freedoms within the asylum, and then allowed on walks outside accompanied by an orderly. Eventually, the orderly was distracted in conversation one fine afternoon, and Boone just decides not to return. In 1851, Boone resumes his trip out west. But first, once again he is unable to take care of himself while on his own. In his escape, he again gets lost and unable to find food and water for himself. He comes across a prospector on his way out west, and he takes pity on Helm. He feeds him and lets him rest, builds a fire for him, you know, all the things. And when Boone has regained his strength, instead of staying with this man and traveling with him, perhaps learning from him, he opts to bash him in his head with a rock, steal his donkey and all of his stuff, and go on alone. 
I wish this guy would have just stopped and asked for directions somewhere. It would have saved so many lives. He goes on. He gets lost. Again. He had to kill the donkey for food and carried as much of the meat along with him as he could, but doesn't come across anyone else that he can kill and rob for days. Weeks. So soon he's out of food. Again. Finally, tired, starving, and thirsty, he comes across another traveler just setting up his camp for the night. No time for small talk. Helm stabs this guy. It turns out he had no food provisions to steal. Too tired to go on, he decides to stop and enjoy the fire that had already been built. The dead guy only a few feet away. He decides that this is the place he's probably going to die. But he's still hungry. It was then he decides to cook up a thigh. The dead man's thigh. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones. And I have to tell you, I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job, and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. It said that Boonhelm killed several men along his travels. It was just easier to kill them and take their stuff than to have to participate in that small talk. He's feeling pretty good about himself, having some dried human jerky in his backpack and for his to-go snack, when he comes across a wagon party. He's able to trade some items for some of their horses, and amazingly enough, everyone in the party gets to live. By 1852, he finally arrives in California. He bounces around from mining camp to mining camp, but from what I could find, he doesn't really do any actual mining. He just takes what he wants from others. He picks fights and apparently participates in any number of duels. He would hide along the main roads and attack those who would come by, murdering them and stealing their belongings. He would team up with other bandits to rob larger game, like stagecoaches. He would then support the small hometown businesses by taking his money back into the towns and spending it in the saloons, brothels, and gambling establishments. By around 1858, with all the trouble he'd caused among the miners of California, he was most likely forced from the state. Boone had collected another half-dozen men that were equally as fond of robbing, and they would be road agents all the way into Oregon Territory. Here, they landed in Dalles, Oregon until a sheriff caught on to what they were doing. Helm wanted to fall back on his protocol and just kill him, but the rest of the gang were not ready to pull the trigger on a member of the law. Amazingly enough, Helm went along with their call. Together, they would go all the way across Oregon and up to Walla Walla, where they doubled their gang and decided to give horse thievery a try. They were not very good at it, and they only came away with a few horses, not the thousands they dreamed of. 
Boone shares some of his history with his mates as they sit around the campfire, and around this time he would say, quote, Many's the poor devil I've killed at one time or another, and the time has been that I've been obliged to feed on some of them. End quote. I'm sure as he stared back at the blank faces, maybe with jaws dropped, he added that he had to so he wouldn't die of hunger. But to keep them on their toes, he added that he wouldn't hesitate to do it again if it meant he wouldn't go hungry. One of the party had heard enough. Dr. William H. Groves, who was happy to accompany the men on their horse-thieving adventure, had to draw the line in sleeping amongst a man who openly states the preference of eating the flesh of a companion rather than game. He was gone from the group by sunrise. By October of 1858, the men were lost in the mountains of Oregon. You'd think at least one of them would know how to navigate. But they apparently placed their trust in the braggart of the bunch, who also happened to be the one who has almost died several times in, like, the last three minutes of this story. <laughs> Nathaniel Langford would write about the area and give us a glimpse of what the men were up against. Quote, The mountains were covered in snow. Cold weather had set in for the season, whose only changes for the next six months would be a steady increase of severities. The thermometer seldom above, often marked the temperature of 30 or 40 degrees below zero. The passes were snowed up to the depths of 20 and 30 feet. Wild game, however abundant in the summer, had retreated to the forests and fastness for food and shelter. Snowstorms and sharp winds were blinding and incessant. Deep ravines, lofty mountains, beetling crags, and dismal canyons alternated with the impenetrable pine forests inaccessible lava beds, and impassable torrents encumbered every inch of the way, end quote. They somehow worked their way all the way back down to the Wasatch Mountains. It is the dead of winter now. Some of this gang has turned back to civilization, others have died along the way, and others are, you guessed it, lost in the freezing temperatures of winter in Upper Nevada. Side note, in case this area sounds familiar, this is around the same place the Donner Party got themselves trapped. They continue north, finding themselves in unfamiliar territory, again, in the harshest of seasons. They had few provisions, and even though they started out on horseback, one by one the horses were sacrificed for food. They used the skins to make snowshoes and continued on until they reached the familiar sites of Soda Springs, Idaho. Quote, the party was now reduced to one of those awful starving marches of the wilderness which are now and then chronicled in Western life. This meant that the weak must perish where they fell. End quote. Helm would recall the event as such quote, The sky at the time was overcast with storm clouds, and soon after we got into our saddles, the weather culminated in a snowstorm which increased in violence until it came terrific. Finally, not being able to see anything but sheets of snow, we became bewildered and knew not in what direction we were proceeding. Side note, as, as if he could find his way in perfect conditions. In the midst of an ocean of snow, we were oblivious of locality in daylight, as if total darkness had encompassed us. End quote. All but two of the party had survived. One of the men succumbed to snow blindness, and he was left to die, and another man trying to cross a freezing cold water source. There was another man too, but I'm not sure if he survived or not. Either way, it came down to two, Boone Helm and Elijah Burton. They sought shelter in an abandoned cabin that was near the entrance to Fort Hall. 
Burton was too weak to continue, so Helm went on without him. He made it to the fort, but found it abandoned and found no food or supplies that would help him, so he trudged his way back to the cabin where Burton waited. When he arrived empty-handed, his traveling companion decided that he couldn't make it any further, and while Helm was building a fire for them, Burton took his own life with a pistol. So the story goes. Waste not, want not, Helm ate the leg of his friend. He carved off another meaty body part, wrapped it in the dead man's flannel shirt, and continued on his way. Around April of 1859, Helm would come across an Indian camp, worn and near death, and was taken in and cared for. And then, as if rinsing and repeating, he kept on until he ran out of supplies and luckily stumbled upon the ranch of John W. Powell. Powell would write, quote, I was entering to indulge in a brief sleep when I heard someone outside ask in a loud tone of voice, Who owns this shebang? Stepping to the door and looking out, I saw a tall, cadaverous, sunken-eyed man standing over me, dressed in a dirty, dilapidated coat and shirt and drawers and moccasins, so worn they could have scarcely tied to his feet, end quote. Helm would tell him of his trial and, with tears in his eyes, beg this man to please aid him. He begged Powell, claiming to, quote, I will give you all I have in the world, which is only nine dollars, to take me to the Mormon settlements, end quote. Powell agreed, but told him he did not have to pay for his help. After his first introduction, he had no idea whom he was addressing, but Powell fed and clothed the stranger and brought him back to health. It was later discovered that Helm had drug over $1,400 in gold coin across the West. I can only imagine where he got that. And he offered none to his new benefactor. Only $9. Whatever. Powell would later write, quote, Having ascertained that he was the worst kind of desperado, I called him to me as soon as we had reached the end of our journey, saying, You can now take care of yourself, never expressing a syllable of thankfulness for the assistance I rendered him. End quote. Helm would use Powell for his food and knowledge, and without even a thank you, left him when they arrived at Salt Lake City, Utah, at the Mormon settlements. Side note. An Indian friend of Powell's would come to his ranch and tell him that he had met Boone before he made it to the ranch. He told Powell about eating some meat that Helm had brought with him. It was dried, and when he tasted it, he said, quote, I knew not what it was, but told the stranger it was bueno game, better than he had to offer, end quote. And then, <laughs> I'm sorry, how wrong is it that, that I am laughing at this? He said that Boone, quote, <laughs> took hold of one of the corners of a red shirt that was around his pack and jerked it up when a white man's leg, the lower end ragged from gnawing, <laughs> rolled out onto the ground, end quote. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry, I just can't imagine seeing that. <clears throat> okay, Nathaniel Pitt Langford would say, quote, Boone continued his lawless behavior in the settlements of Salt Lake, end quote. He lived in these settlements for two or three months, bragging of his murderous exploits. He would spend all of his money in saloons and brothels. When he ran out of money, he joined in with a gang of rustlers. These guys would target the government shipments and steal their livestock. Boone is credited with shooting two government wranglers on one of their heists. 
He was then offered a job to take care of a few Mormons that needed to disappear. The group that Helm was invited into is secretly called the Danites. In the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, way back when Joseph Smith was still the leader, this subgroup of the church formed and became something of a vigilante group. The fixers of the budding religion and growing into a central force by the 1838 Mormon War, a topic for another podcast. While Joseph Smith approved of the group, he probably wasn't completely aware of their private, written-between-the-lines agendas. And while they claimed to have disbanded long before Brigham Young took the helm and led the church out west, the myth continued. And while it may have been structured without a fancy branding name, Helm was hired to kill certain unwanted members within the community. They soon found out, however, that Boone was a little too good at his job, and he would be asked to leave. He didn't want to leave, so the officials asked the community for help. They hung up wanted posters, offering a reward for his capture. One evening, Boone strolls into a saloon, and the bartender recognizes him and attempts to arrest him, and Boone shot him in the head. Not today, bartender man, not today. He wandered back towards California, killing and robbing as needed. He is wanted by the authorities in several states now, but as he crossed back over into California, he is given shelter and cover from the posse attempting to arrest him. Again, he is tired, hungry, and thirsty, and this rancher, Tomlinson, that helps him is shot and killed for his trouble. He decided not to stay in California, but heads back into Oregon once again, and, as per usual, engaged in the quote-unquote fresh villainies. One of his most brazen and public killings was documented in 1862 in Florence, Oregon. Here, I couldn't find a lot of information about what actually led up to the murder, but from what we now know, Boonhelm didn't need a lot of convincing to take the life of another human being. Dutch Fred was considered, quote, neither rowdy nor desperado, honest and generous. One night, Fred was sitting in a saloon playing pharaoh, minding his own business, but his head turned when Boone came in. He really didn't pay much attention, but Helm, quote, having been plied with liquor, set out to provoke a fight. There may have been someone else in the town that was willing to put up a bit of money if Dutch Fred were taken care of. Quote, Helm, with many oaths and epithets and flourishes of his revolver, challenged Fred to an immediate deadly combat, end quote. The saloon owner, not looking forward to having to clean up blood from his floor, quote, deprived both of their weapons, end quote. Fred returned to his game. Helm stepped back for a few moments and appealed to the saloon owner, apologizing for the disturbance, requesting his weapons, and promising to immediately depart. No sooner than he had the pistol in hand, he, quote, uttered a diabolical oath, fired at him while seated at the table, end quote. The shot missed him. Dutch Fred was up on his feet, but that was his one and only warning shot. Helm wasted no time in firing off another, dropping Fred to the floor. He was unarmed and shot point-blank in the chest. It was after this entanglement that he felt the urge to leave. His wanderings straight north crossing into British Columbia would once again <laughs> lead him to a new travel partner, and once again, they found themselves in harsh weather, and <laughs> once again, they were near starvation. But soon, Boone was no longer starving, and, by the way, he'll be making the rest of the trip alone. A British Columbia paper would print, quote, 
The man Boonhelm has at last been taken. He was brought into this city last night strongly ironed. End quote. American officers were on the trail, and he must have known it. The newspaper would continue, quote, He passed around the populous settlements or through them in the nighttime. When overtaken, he was so exhausted by fatigue and hunger that it would have been impossible for him to have continued many hours longer. He made no resistance to the arrest. In fact, he was too weak to do so. End quote. <laughs> How did he survive this long? After he was captured by authorities and complied with all of their requests and questions, they asked him about his partner, who was also a wanted fugitive. <laughs> he says, quote, Do you think I'm damn fool enough to starve when I can help it? I ate him, of course. End quote. <laughs> the newspaper followed with, quote, The man who accompanied him has not been seen or heard of since, and from what we have been told of this case hardened villain's antecedents, we are inclined to believe he told the truth. It is said that this is not the first time he has been guilty of cannibalism. End quote. He was not charged with murder. He was charged only with stealing apples from a fruit stand and not paying his bar tab. He was found guilty and fined $50 and told to spend 30 days in jail. He's okay with that. He serves out his full time, and the day following his release, he hops on a steamer that takes him deeper into the British Columbia, where he is again apprehended by American authorities. He is sent back to Portland, Oregon to await trial for the murder of Dutch Fred. They really don't like it when you shoot an unarmed man in a public place. Nathaniel Langford at this time had been tasked to bringing Mr. Helm to heel. He would write how he would be traveling to Florence to see justice served. He writes, quote, He is fairly within the sharp fangs of the law. Hope soon to learn that justice has finally overtaken him and that the world is freed from his further depredations, end quote. Words written perhaps a bit too soon. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! His brother, Tex Helm, happens to be in Boise, Idaho, working on some mining prospects of his own and doing quite well. He, quote, had a good reputation for honesty, liberality, and courage, end quote. Quote, True to the fraternal instinct, Tex promptly responded and soon made his appearance in Florence with a heavy purse, end quote. He decided to come to his brother's aid and goes about bribing all the witnesses from Florence. So, come trial day, none of the witnesses show up and they have no other choice but to dismiss the case and release him. Boone goes back to Boise with his brother where he offers him the opportunity to be a good citizen and earn an honest living. 
Boonhelm sees the light. He decides he is turning over a new leaf. He is going to be a miner. That lasted for all of two days. His brother offers to pay his way to Texas and sets up a commission for him in the Confederate Army. He said, quote, If you must fight and nothing else will do, you can join the Confederate armies and do something for your country, end quote. Boone accepts, but instead takes the money and heads back west, ending up in Virginia City, Montana. Here in December of 1862, he joins up with a group called the Innocents. They were road agents who robbed and murdered travelers between Bannock and Virginia City, Montana. Langford would write, quote, And thus originated the band of desperados, which for the succeeding two years by their fearful atrocities spread much terror through the northern mines. Henry Plummer was their acknowledged leader. They became so formidable in numbers then, and their deeds of blood were so frequent and daring that the mining camps were awed by them into tacit submission and witnessed without even remonstrance the perpetration of murders and robberies in their very midst, end quote. One newspaper reported, quote, If one of them needed clothing, ammunition, or food, he obtained it on credit, which no one dared refuse, and settled it by threatening to shoot the person bold enough to ask for payment. End quote. Finally, one of the outlaws, John Long, is captured. He blames everything on Henry Plummer, but in exchange for clemency, also implicates Boone Helm and five others as being the main members of the Innocents. December 1863, the citizens of Virginia City had had enough. George Ives was one of the Innocents' road agents. One afternoon, he decided to work alone and came across Nicholas Tibalts. He would brutally kill him and, tossing his body aside, stole his belongings. The residents found his body and soon after saw Ives with the stolen donkeys. When questioned as to the whereabouts of the rightful owner, he calmly stated, quote, Tabalts will never cause anyone trouble again, end quote. On December 21st, 1863, 25 men pledged their support to put a stop to the violence starting with George Ives. This would become known as the Vigilance Committee. They wanted to capture all of the road agents and bring them to justice to set an example for future criminals. They succeeded in arresting and hanging George Ives and decided, why stop there? They commit to going after all the road agents in the area. Many hear of this and flee. In January of 1864, they decided to narrow down their search to nine men. They were caught, but two managed to escape. The final seven were tried, five were found guilty, and were sentenced to hang immediately. And just to be fair, when I say trial, it was a pretty slanted affair. January 10th, the alleged leader, who they named as Henry Plummer, was arrested and hanged. They did not allow him final words or any time to pray before he would swing. To this day, there is still a debate of his guilt or innocence. Deputy Sheriff George Lane would be the next to hang, along with two others. On January 13th, 500 armed men surrounded the borders of the city, not permitting anyone in or out. The maneuver was so well executed, no one realized they were prisoners in their own town until they witnessed the line of armed vigilance surrounding the area. More men were called in from nearby towns to help in this, the final chapter of the Innocents. It took three men to sneak up and capture Boonhelm, and he immediately claimed his innocence, swearing he had never killed a soul. 
They produced a Bible, and he not only placed his hand on it professing his innocence, but kissed it several times. The honest gentlemen surrounding him watched in amazement as he was able to do such actions without flinching. I guess they expected him to be struck by lightning or something. Emerson Hoff would later write, quote, They made him kiss the Bible and swear to this over again just to see what lengths his perjured and depraved soul would go. He swore on the Bible with perfect calmness, end quote. However, if you've known Boone Helm for five minutes, you know him to be a killer. So, they didn't let him off that easily. The more they pressured him, the more he attempted to look innocent, until finally he laughed, unable to keep it in any longer, and proceeded to confess, here, tell stories of his misadventures, to several murders. They counted 18, but Helm just smiled at their total count. I think he chose to keep a few, a dozen, to himself. He denied being a road agent, however, and happily passed the blame to his co-villain Jack Gallinger, and of course Plummer, who had already been hanged by this time. Huff adds, quote, Jack Gallagher, also under arrest, heard him thus incriminate himself and others of the gang and called him all the names in the calendar, telling him he ought to die, end quote. Jack Gallagher, along with Clubfoot George Lane, Frank Parrish, Boone Helm, and Hayes Lyons, who were all accused of being members of the Bloodthirsty Innocents, were rounded up and hauled to the unfinished Virginia Hotel building. Here, ropes were tossed over the center beams in the main hall. The doors were opened wide and the crowds gathered all around. Produce boxes were placed under each noose for them to stand on. Clubfoot George Lane was arrested and hung believed to be a spy for the innocents. He would himself jump from the box, expediting his own death on his own terms. Boone would call out from his box down the row in front of him, quote, There's one gone to hell, end quote. Side note, later in 1907, for some bizarre reason, his body was dug up and his deformed foot was removed and put under glass for display. Apparently, it is still on display. Frank Parrish was crippled from being caught out in the cold where his hands and feet froze. He barely survived, and even though he was barely able to walk, he was forced into confessing to cattle and horse rustling and robbing a stagecoach. It was also proven that he could not have participated in these robberies since he was still bedridden at the time they happened. He did willingly confess to providing food to outlaws, but... He and his wife were known to provide food for anyone who needed it, no outlaw affiliation required. He would say, quote, I am innocent of all, as innocent as you are, end quote. No one defended him. Way back, Jack Gallagher was hired on as deputy sheriff under Henry Plummer, even though he was known for murdering a man in Colorado. This was the beginnings of the suspicion on Plummer as being the leader of the innocents. Jack Three-Fingered Gallagher was probably the closest thing to a friend Helm had. He was a bandit through and through. Standing beside him along the hanging row, they removed Jack's overcoat and Boone told them to give it to him, to which Jack replied, Why? You won't need it now. End quote. Moments before he died, Jack was said to have yelled to a friend and fellow deputy, quote, Ray, I'm going to heaven. I'll be there in time to open the gate for you, old fellow. End quote. When the box was kicked out from under Jack's feet, he kicked and tried to reach the floor, and Boone calmly said, quote, Kick away, old fellow. End quote. As Gallagher's body grew still and swinging, Boone would say, quote, 
My turn next. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. End quote. Quote, I have looked at death in all forms, said Helm Cooley, and I am not afraid to die. End quote. Huff would write, quote, He then asked for a glass of whiskey, as did a good many of these murderers when they were brought to the gallows. From that time on, he was cool and unconcerned and showed a finish worthy of one ambitious to be thought of wholly bad. Boonhelm was a confederate and a bitter one, and this seems to have remained with him to the last. He would suddenly shout, quote, Every man for his principles! Hurrah for Jeff Davis! Let her rip! He sprang off the box, and so he finished, utterly hard and reckless to the last. When he was pronounced dead, he was cut down and his body was taken out into the street. It laid there for hours, and finally at the end of the day, when no one claimed it, it was drugged down the street to Boot Heel Cemetery and buried. Side note. Huff would later write this, and I thought it was too good not to share. Quote, the territory of Utah allowed a felon convicted under the death penalty to choose the manner of his death, whether by hanging, beheading, or shooting, but no record remains of any prisoner who did not choose death by shooting. A curiosity as to the sensation of hanging was evinced in the words of several who were hung by vigilantes. Peculiar instance of this unconscious but brim humor was afforded at Gallagher's execution. Just as he was led to the box and ordered to climb up, he drew a pocket knife and declared he would kill himself and not be hanged in public. A vigilante covered him with a six-shooter. Drop that, Jack, he exclaimed, or I'll blow your head off. So Gallagher, having the choice of death between shooting, hanging, or beheading, chose to hang after all. He was but a coward. End quote. And that is the peculiar story of the cannibal Boone Helm the man who couldn't find his way out of a paper bag and others had to suffer for it. I always love hearing your feedback on these episodes and join you to enter into conversation on the Facebook or Instagram pages at Bag of Bones Podcast. If you'd like to help others find the show, I'm told that your ratings and reviews outside of word of mouth are the best avenues to follow. And let me thank you in advance. And as always, I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.